Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Seven Engineering Vibe Podcast. Now in this podcast, me and Dr. Ghanem Kashwani, we like to speak about different topics. And topics like what we want, for example, startup, entrepreneurship, new trend, mental health and career and self-improvement and self-engineering and sometimes another thinking major. We like also to interview other people from other fields. So we like to get the expertise on how they can benefit us and benefit society. So let us jump to the episode and thank you guys and wishing you the best. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good evening, good afternoon from where you are. Well, in this episode, we speak with Dr. Irvin Lugret. I hope I said my name correct, to be honest. We speak about emotional intelligence and how emotional intelligence can be helpful for engineers. Because personally, I faced from it three years back and I used to get everything personally. So let us jump on the episode and I hope you like the episode. Take care. Bye. Hi, hi, Dr. Nenwood. How are you? I hope you are doing good. I hope you are spelling my your name correct. Uh, yes, yes, I am. I'm doing well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So can you tell us more about, you know, the audience about yourself? Sure. Um, so my background is that I was born in Northern Ireland and I grew up there. And uh, presently I live in the U.S. I moved here uh, when I was 21 and I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And so the work that I do is mainly in organizations with leaders and with managers and with aspiring leaders. And I focus in an area of leadership called emotional intelligence. And that really is the majority of the work that I do. I do that through different trainings and then also through speaking and coaching different clients as well. And so that really is now the core and the work of what I do. So can you define more what is the emotional intelligence because people, especially who's going to graduate, fresh graduate, who's going to graduate from an engineering college or from any college, he doesn't have the experience of emotional intelligence. Can you define it more about about the audience? Sure. So when it comes to emotional intelligence, I like to say um, people who have high levels of emotional intelligence, there are four characteristics that you tend to see. So the first characteristic is self-awareness. Emotionally intelligent people are self-aware. And what we mean by that is they know, for example, what emotions they're feeling, when they're feeling it. They know what their emotional triggers are and how to recover from those. And then the second thing they're able to do is they're able to manage those emotions. So emotionally intelligent people have um, a number of different tools and skills that help them manage emotions in the moment. The third thing is that they are aware of the emotions of other people. So when they're in conversation or they walk into a room, they're able to uh, be able to feel or experience what's happening there. They're able to emphasize and to um, connect to other people. And then the final element is that they're able to use all this information to manage the relationships that they're in and to use that relationship for the best outcome possible, depending on the context of the conversation. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Irvin, if you allow me to ask about the, you know, emotional intelligence is really important in my topic, especially in this era, because, um, you know, with all the digitizing, uh, everything has been automated. We don't have a time to have the self-awareness. I, I believe everything starts with self-awareness. Mm-hmm. As you said, I know my triggers. I know, um, and you said I need to self-regulation, self-management that, yes, this, this, um, Bushes in this time, I need to be happy. I need to be angry, you know. And unfortunately, there is some social conditioning that affect our emotional intelligence. For example, I mentioned that before that we tell, you know, I have like I have a daughter and I have a son, you know, 
like for me when they start crying I said fine you can cry but however there is a, some um, theme have been socially they said no you are you are, you are money don't you don't cry you suppress your feeling and this you know one one time it it will explode and this affect the emotional intelligence and as you said you can manage your emotion by journaling going to therapist um uh, you can maneuver in the end of the day it is an energy that you need to channel it in the right way and uh, my question is that usually i have this debate with many therapists and um, where i should put self-acceptance you know beside with this is self-acceptance should come after self-awareness or with self-acceptance my self-awareness will start then i have better emotional intelligence so it's a really interesting question. Um, how I would view that question is that um, when it comes to self-acceptance, um, so first of all, the, the self-awareness is, let me just say one thing you mentioned um, about the social conditioning. And um, we, we absolutely, we grow up in a culture and a culture has a language around emotions and and a feeling around emotions. And you know, for me, at the very basic level, emotions are conveyors of, of information that we need to pay attention to. Emotions have developed uh, in, in the human person really to help us and to benefit us. And so if we're not able to express them, if the, we repress them, that's not helping us. And so then when it comes to, to self-acceptance, you know, very often we can have a language around how we view ourselves. And sometimes that can be healthy and sometimes it can be unhealthy. And therefore, uh, you know, part of, of, of self-awareness is listening to sometimes that internal voice that we have. And sometimes that's internal voice, again, can be destructive or it can be constructive. Now, um, I want to clarify as well, you know, sometimes um, our, our behaviors um, are not what they should be. Our behaviors are destructive. And so self-acceptance doesn't necessarily mean that we accept parts of us, you know, like you could say, like, for example, like I've, I'm quick to get angry. And when I get angry, um, I, I say things that I shouldn't say. And you could say, well, I'm just self-accepting myself. That's just how I'm made up. And that's not, uh, I wouldn't like to say that that's a good form of self-acceptance. Basically, the self-acceptance is, is to accept the fact that at times, yes, my emotions get the better off me, but I always want to use them in a way that is constructive to a, to a relationship and not destructive. So you are saying self-acceptance is not about giving up. It's about acknowledge the elephant in the room and then yeah. you work on it. And simply Absolutely. That I was about to say, yes, you know, really um, a mindset that is so important here is a mindset of curiosity. So are, are we curious about um, uh, our, our emotions? Are we curious about where they've come from? And, and to be able to have that mindset and then to realize, you know what? Um, because sometimes when it comes to emotional intelligence, we have to look backwards. So in other words, we're, we, we, we find ourselves doing something that really wasn't um, – helpful in a situation that really uh, impacted the relationship. And so we look at that and then we're able to say, well, where did that come from? Um, I need to be curious about that. Is this the first time it's happened? Is this something that there's a pattern? And where did that pattern come from? So that spirit of curiosity is really important. So, so doctor, there is a say, I think it is important that you are not, you are feeling. You know, many people, they judge themselves 
about their feeling, you know? Yes. And we need to make this is very important, I think, that you are not your feeling. I usually talk to Atif about this. Definitely, you know, you will feel low, um, high, and sometimes it is the biorhythm, you know, this is life. I mean, all the creatures, they have the same things, you know? Men, women, plants, they have their biorhythm. So you have your high moments, your low moments. Mm -hmm. But once you get the feeling, you don't judge yourself. And I usually say, be kind with yourself. I'm not saying you just, um, uh, you give up. You, be kind with the yourself because this is the most relationship important in your life. You with yourself, you know. You accept mm -hmm. your vulnerability. You try, and and I think this is uh, what we need to tell people. I mean, um, for example, even the engineers, they are very harsh on themselves because they seek for perfection. They don't yeah. allow themselves to do mistake. And usually, yeah. I usually say, if you need to give yourself a permission, two things: to make a mistake and to feel. Not okay. That's fine yeah. to feel not okay and to do mistake. And maybe yeah. I don't know, Atif, what do you think about that? No, I, I agree with it. So I have done some work with engineers. I've also done some work with uh, professions, I would say, that are on a similar vein of that that accuracy is important. So say with accountants, etc. And And absolutely, there are jobs that we do that there is no room for error in the sense of we, we need to be precise. However, when it comes to the human person, that, that drive of perfectionism, which so often can help us in our work, is not good. Because um, as human beings, uh, just as you've mentioned, um, there, there isn't a point of, of perfection. Um, you know, our emotions are there and our emotions change depending on the day. So, I mean, I like to think of myself as highly skilled when it comes to emotional intelligence. And yet I know tomorrow morning, if I don't get a good night's sleep, if I wake up, I'm hungry and I'm tired, that is going to be more difficult for me to manage my emotions. And that's just part of our human state. And so to be able to accept that, to be able to accept that with humility and to know that that we're striving for our best and at times there is there is no perfect uh what it is is every moment allows us just an opportunity um to use our emotions to the best of our ability so uh, dr Herbert, so to be honest like because i personally struggled from the past from emotional intelligence so i went to some type of course and some of training personally like for mm -hmm. example interpersonal interpersonal skill but sometimes, how we can know our trigger and how can how can we get the best way of trigger, catching our trigger? Because many ways, we don't sometimes know our trigger. Sometimes it comes based on personal skills, sometimes based on the stress. So how can do it? And what can leader do to do to do the best in order to know to minimize the conflict? Yes. Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, I have a, a, a word that I kind of developed to express this. And I said, you know, every person has a fingerprint and that fingerprint is unique. And we also have what's called, I believe, a trigger print. And so everyone has a certain amount of emotional triggers. Some of our triggers are very similar. But for all of us, it depends as well that some of them are different because we have grown up differently. We're in different cultures. We have different familial experiences. We have different work experiences. And so what triggers me emotionally may be very difficult or very different from yours. So the first step in managing our triggers is to notice and become aware of what our triggers are. And very often at the beginning, that means paying attention to certain actions. So, so in other words, when, when something's triggered us, and we're not very aware of those triggers, it requires us to be reflective uh, of, of the situation at the end point. So saying, wow, that conversation didn't go well. I really got angry there. What was it that got me so angry? What was said? What, what happened? Or I get into work and, and I'm 
for example, say if rapid change is a trigger and my boss comes to me and says, you know, the work you've done up to this, we're going to change it. We're going in a new direction. And I just feel myself getting angry. So it's the noticing what is it that 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 has strong emotional reaction and especially strong emotional reaction that may be out of context for what happened. And so then to begin to explore that. And so then say we, we begin to explore that and where did that come from? So say, for example, I was working with a client a few months ago. They had a meeting every Wednesday. And in that meeting, one person would always cut them off, would, would speak over them. And they had this reaction. And what happened is they just shut down. They went silent and they disengaged from the meeting. And we were talking about that and we were saying, you know, that's really not serving you. It's not serving the company um, because you have ideas that are important. And so to begin then, they explored that. Well, what is it about that? And they went back to growing up that basically at the dining room table, they weren't allowed to speak. They were always silenced. And so they have this trigger within them that says, wow, if I speak, if someone silences me, I shut down. So what we want to do with triggers is that we want to begin to be curious and explore um, what is it that, that evokes within me an emotional reaction? And then where does that come from? And maybe what are some of the values that it violates? What are some of the things that, that are deeper that really get to me? And I think with that knowledge, now, that's not a quick, there's not a quick fix here. This is something that takes a little bit of time, takes a little bit of energy, and uh, but the benefits are huge because once we learn the pattern, then we're able to say, okay, I'm going into a situation today where one of my triggers might be evoked. What am I going to do? How am I going to react? And then it allows us to perhaps introduce choice into how we react. So, so Dr. Ibn, if you allow me, I'll share you my personal experience about, I did somehow like SWOT analysis for myself. Sure. So that, so, so that I analyzed my triggers. So usually, if you see, I have a lot of notebooks. Uh -huh. so, so what I'm going, each week I said, okay, this week I'll try to, to know what my trigger. So this is what I did with my therapist, like, and uh, maybe two years ago, I said, he, he was telling me, you know, write everything that trigger you. So for example, the traffic jam, uh, I wrote uh, waiting in the line, for example. People sometimes, you know, I work in academia as, um, as a research professor, and sometimes when my students, they keep asking the same question, I get irritated. <laughs> And I, I, I just keep you know, writing these things and um, then I start having more knowledge. And there, here is my question. There's things is rooted backward many times and then there's a concept of inner child. And this mm -hmm. is, you can do the quick fix. You need to heal your inner child about it. But mm -hmm. there are certain things you can avoid. You know, the first things of controlling and that you avoid the things that trigger you. But there's things you cannot avoid it. You know, you need to go Correct. through it. Yeah. Correct. So uh, then you put your management plan. But... The good thing is, you know, the most dangerous point here that you don't know what is triggering you. But at least when you know, you are in the, in the line to be fixed. So my question, when you think that it's like trigger you that long time ago, maybe for some trauma you have been in childhood, while you are in the processing of healing, what the best kind of management of emotional intelligence that you can use to, like what best mechanism, uh, coping mechanism we can use for that? 
Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, sometimes um, our, our triggers um, can be recent and sometimes they can go back really to childhood events and childhood trauma. And one of the things we know about triggers is that they're very difficult. In fact, many, many psychologists and would, would say we can't remove them. They're so deeply. What we can do is manage them. And so what I like to say is that, you know, part of emotional intelligence and highly emotional intelligence people is that we've go to we've go to um, tools that we can use to help us lower perhaps some of the anxiety we're feeling in the midst of those. So uh, journaling is, is one that you have mentioned, and that, that tends to be after the fact, which is a great resource to begin to learn. But uh, say, for example, different breathing techniques. So, um, for example, when someone is triggered very often, they can go into maybe a fight or flight um, mode where they feel fear, etc. And so we know, let's say, for example, one of the breathing techniques I teach is called 487. And that is breathe in for four seconds, hold it for eight, and breathe out for seven seconds. And what we know about that is that's very helpful for moving from the sympathetic nervous system, which is when we are in this fight or flight, into the parasympathetic, which lowers our blood pressure and calms us down. So, and there's there's other there's another I, I there's another breathing technique I use seven second reset, which is in the midst of emotional intriguing to put our feet in the ground for one second, and that physicality helps us move away from the emotionality of our brain. And then three seconds in, we begin to notice what's happening in our body. Where is the tensions? Have we moved in? Have we moved out? And then breathing out, make adjustments so that our presence um, is what we want it to be. Um, so that's it. There, there's also the power of visualization. So a very, a very uh, powerful technique can be to um, if we're if we know what a, a trigger is. So say for example, uh, one of the trigger. I love it. One of the triggers you said is when when I get all these incessant questions from students, I get triggered. And so the thing is then the visualization. Well, what would be uh, a, another way of you coping with that that's difficult for you to do at the moment? And then to begin to visualize that. And one of the powers of visualization is that we know that um, when we're able to create new neural pathways in the brain so that we're able actually even by visualizing it to imagine that we're actually doing it ourselves. So these are some of the tools that can be really helpful in, in beginning to, to deal and to manage with triggers because um, very often what we can do is we can reduce the power of the triggers over us but um, at times they'll always be there, and uh, and what we get is we get very versed in being able to um, to use these these tools to help us. You know, you know, doctor, you remind me with a book called Breaking the Habit, and mm-hmm. uh, it teaches you as you said when you, for example, you want to go, uh, you know, if you want to be to be a monk, and you go, to, especially in the Buddhism philosophy, the first thing they teach you how to breathe. Maybe the yes. first, second, mm-hmm. third, three years, just how to breathe. Then how to yeah. meditate, as you said, visualization. And this is, you know, there's many books about the law of attraction. And uh, you, you talk about neuroplasticity. You create new neurons in your brain. And you try to, especially people with the trauma, to, uh, to reduce the strength of the bounds of what happened between the neurons. So you actually create new neurons. And... Uh, uh, I think um, this is Freud, he was mistaken because Freud was saying that anything you get in the first six years, it will be stay forever. However, mm-hmm. then later the, in psychology, they said, no, there is new plasticity. And there is a quote, I, I, I remember who said, he said, it is never too late to have a childhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, something like this. And um, 
I think Atif, me and Atif, we talk about that a lot about uh, how we can create a new child, a new beginning, and as you mentioned, mm-hmm. breathing. So can we say it, Atif and Doctor, it is kind of lifestyle we are talking here about? Um, so um, I would say that um, what I what I like to teach or what I like to to people to consider is perhaps um, create. You mentioned the word habit. It's almost creating new habits where we are building into our daily experiences, what I like to say, moments of check-in. You know, so very often we get in the day immersed in the busyness of life. And, and the reality of work is that work is insanely busy. But can we break into that with, with check-in points where we're actually checking in consciously with ourselves? How are we feeling in this moment? Where are we at in this moment? Um, what am, I'm going into a meeting now. What might be happening in that meeting? What am I bringing into this meeting? What am I taking away from the meeting? And, 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 and introducing moments where this breathing just becomes part of a new habit. Um, and I really think that when that happens, then I think we become much more conscious and mindful as we go through the day. Now, again, uh, Bringing up an earlier point, this is not perfection, and there's no way we can. And, on, and we, we're constantly coming back to to giving ourselves attention in a gentle way. But I think creating those new habits are very impactful. So regarding creating new habit, because I understand, because when you said about the trickle, and about, for example, for me, as you said previously about the example, I I don't like someone to for me for if once I'm shutting down, I will shut down. I'm like this type of giver. If you can't talk to me, I will be shut down immediately. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would be shut down or even because I had someone go over me. Mm-hmm. So, because and whether we talk about, like, about the trickle and how to get the habit. But, for example, what if, for example, like, what about from the other side of people? Like, put something in the other people's shoes or you be active listener. How about that? Like, because if we be an active listener, how can active listening inf- inf- can be improved the emotional intelligence and be thinking, emotion, like, resolving the problem? Well, so yes, I mean, listening is a core element of emotional intelligence. And so people who have high levels of emotional intelligence are very skilled at active listening. And, you know, if you did a survey and you asked people, you know, are you a great listener? You know, 99% of people would put up their hands because everyone thinks they're a great listener. But in reality, we're not. Because in reality, I think we're surprised by how distracted we are. And the the ability to be present to another person and to um, be able to listen to them, not just listening to the words, but also um, experiencing all the messages that are coming from this conversation, their nonverbals, their verbals, et cetera, is actually something very difficult. And, um, and I think, you know, part of that process is to, first of all, become aware of some of what I like, I like to call our listening barriers, um, to be aware of what gets in the way of us listening. You know, for some people, it's when we're in conversation, we're already thinking about the response that we're going to make. Or uh, we're, we're caught maybe in a daydream. We're caught in thinking about something we have to do next. All of these take away or rob our potential to, to truly listen to the other person. But, but listening um, is, is a core skill and absolutely because that truly helps us connect and engage to the other person and become aware of what's happening in the moment and aware of really what's happening to us in the moment. I completely resonate with that because, for example, active listener is a problem I face at 10 now for me because I'm trying to get, you know, I'm the impatient guy who wants to respond to the guy because I'm the guy who can, if I can't, can, you know, I can't handle, 
you know, Twitter, I, used to, I started suffering from it from my emotional intelligence. Like, if you shout to me, I will shout three times back, you know. I'm some of these type of guys. So now, regarding, like, active listener and, and how the pay, how, should we take time to process all the information before we get a response? Or we can say, it, okay, or we can say to the other guy, please, I can, I have to respond to you later. And what for the other guy, for example, we are in conflict in the work. Me and another guy, we have a conf- part of converse- conversation where it's going to be intense. Because we're going to get an active listening, for example. For example, I want to, I want to process it in because you, go, you have to take time to process all the information in order to, to respond the proper response. So, how uh, can you say immediately to the guy, please, I will respond to you later, or you ca- you have to you have to be be quiet, or or you know, or you have to go out, for example. What is the best solution? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. I think part of this as well um, is based on personality. So if we use the, th- the extroversion and introversion as well, this is important here because I'm an extrovert. Okay. And as an extrovert, I like to do my thinking externally. And so for me, when I'm in a conversation, say with you, when we're discussing things, um, part of me is I'm going to want to respond. I want to want to dialogue. And so part of me is saying, Oh, wow, we can come to a, a conclusion by speaking about it. For introverts, that's a very different experience. For introverts, I need a time to process before I'm going to say something back. I need time to think about what I'm saying because when I say it, I want it to be organized and I want it to have the meaning I want to attach to it. Whereas an extrovert, I'm not concerned about that. I'll think I'll get to that, but at the, and the messiness of trying to, to, to excitement about discussing the ideas that becomes important. So I think in any a conversation, we have to realize, um, I'm, am I dealing with an introvert or am I dealing with an extrovert? And if I'm dealing with an introvert, I need to give that person time to process. And that may include, just as you said, maybe, you know what, maybe, do you want to take a, a day with that to think about it and get back to me? Um, you know, this is a real problem when it comes to meetings. Because what happens in a meeting is the end of the meeting, you know, theoretically, if it's not being said in the meeting, it hasn't been said. And very often that Uh, disadvantages introverts. And so what needs to happen is we need to provide a space where people have thought about things and then come back. Now, the second element of your question then is about when it's heated and there's, 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 it's, there's tension and conflict. Um, Then I think, you know, part of that is first of all, some self-reflection. So if I'm going into a conversation where I know it's tense and I know it may lead to an argument then I need to, first of all, be aware, am I aware within my own body, uh, the signals that I am getting angry? And am I aware, and, and what am I going to do if I feel I'm getting angry? Um, am I able to breathe in the moment to kind of reduce some of the, the tension that I'm feeling? Or am I able to, to get to a point where I'm able to say, you know what, time out. Um, we, 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 we just need to um, think about this a little bit more and uh, to take a break uh, because uh, we've reached a point where if it continues, we're probably going to say something that we'll later regret or it's not helpful for the conversation. So I think there's there's no one way. I think there's, there's many different ways, but part of it is knowing ourselves, um, knowing how we process information, knowing uh, how the other person does that, and then uh, making adjustments. That's fantastic, because for example, like you... You have to make adjustment and you have to be, especially in the question of conversation, heat it up. Some people, sometimes they forget where they are. So yes. we forget where they are sometimes because, for example, you know, 
people that get emotional people especially like to be honest we are working construction it's a heated you know it's a heated conversation heated market sometime and everything will start you know going south sometime southwest for yeah. example to the south so what about uh, the healthy boundary and how you know how we can draw a proper healthy boundary between you and the other guy or between you and the boss Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. You know, the other thing I want to say as well, it, it, so we all have a, what I like to say a relationship with conflict. Uh, for some of us, it is uh, we do not mind um, having a conflict, arguing our case, showing up. For others, that's a very uncomfortable and, and we pretend we will resist that no matter what. So, you know, part of creating healthy boundaries is First of all, um, I, I think at the core of any relationship is um, respect. And I think um, uh, other people deserve our respect and we deserve respect from other people. And so I think when we feel, when we feel we're, we're, we're um, um, I think a distinction I like to make is, is the argument about an idea or is the argument become more personal? And, and I think, you know, when we're debating an idea, when we're debating something and perhaps it gets heated, if, it, if it's in the idea, then that's fine. That's, that's part of healthy argument. And, uh, and perhaps our discomfort is a signal to us that we're just discomfortable about conflict. But then if, it, if it, there's a boundary that gets over, if it starts becoming personal, if the person starts making statements about us, like say, for example, like, oh, you're always like that. You always shut the conversation. Then, it's, then it's, it's, it's become a little more personal. And I think that's different. And I think we can uh, create a healthy boundary about that. You know, uh, I'm more than happy to debate about ideas. But when we start attacking each other personally, then there's a boundary that's been crossed that I think we deserve respect. I love you speak about it and you speak about it like between you separate yourself from your work and you separate yourself from being you. Because mm -hmm. for example, yeah, especially in the work, for example, it treats up to, I agree with you, where it treats up to heat it sometimes where we heat ourselves to a level that especially we take it personal ourselves. Yes. When actually that's a work and that's either work. But still, because, you know, still that's a very, very old topic and very, it's a debatable topic. And so how we can practice having a safe bounty? Shall we do it? Shall we, we, we avoid a conflict or should we train ourselves to be in conflict before? Or we should, or should we journal it before and should we throw it with understand how to throw the line? Or shall we have multiple boundaries? Oh, well, that's, um, so first of all, I think, I think, First of all, we have to be aware of, of how, what is our present state when it comes to conflict? What's our history there? What do we notice about our behavior? Are we people that tend to shut down when things get tense? Um, or are we people that, uh, you know, uh, rush right in when it comes to conflict? There are some people that just love it and, and, and they thrive on it. So, and both of those are points to notice. Um, so I think that's important as well. And then we have to begin to, to, to push ourselves, ask questions. Well, what is it? What is it that we're fearful of? You know, there, why is it that I don't want to have conflict? And very often, I think one of the big things is I don't want to, um, I don't want to fall out with this person. I don't want to have a bad relationship with this person. And I think we equate conflict with having a bad relationship with the person. And that's not always the case. So I think we, we, we do have to challenge ourselves and push ourselves. And I do think we do have multiple boundaries. I mean, I think, I think there's multiple boundaries at work. Um, you know, work is a different thing, um, than say perhaps, um, in, in, um, with friends, with your friends or with families. You know, sometimes the boundaries are a little bit different there. And sometimes, um, if we have very dear friends and they make comments at us, we're able to laugh 
half things off that perhaps we wouldn't do at work. It's very interesting. So I think that's okay as well. Um, and then the other thing is as well, um, when it comes to work, I think there is a place for a leader to also set a vision for um, how how discussions are going to be held. And I think, you know, it is very, conflict is part of work. It, it, you know, we need it because, um, especially when it's conflict around ideas, because it generates, you know, discussion and, 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 and good discussions inherently have some form of conflict around ideas. Because then what happens is people are able to express their ideas and then we can decide what is the best idea. So I think it can be helpful at times if there are some parameters around, you know, what, what's healthy and what's not healthy. Um, and I think very often a leader, uh, if a leader is able to do that, it can be very helpful for the team. I love that when you said about the leader should be also aware about these things and about emotional intelligence. Because to be honest, because most of the leaders are, I what from my personal experience, they don't have an experience of what emotional intelligence. And yeah. most of the work where I work, it's also about me. It's not about the other guy. We are yeah. not putting ourselves in the other guy's shoes. Either than either you face yourself with a good manager or you get me with a narcissist. Yeah. So how we can how we how we can like open this conversation about the work about emotion intelligence and and make about it about the other people and how to consider about the button other people's shoes or consider about the other thinking from other guy perspective or other guy behavior well i mean i think ultimately the biggest argument for emotional intelligence at work is that um we become more uh, productive at work you know, for for just from an organizational point of view i mean it the bottom line organizations with higher levels of emotional intelligence perform better their employees perform better and um there's higher levels of retention so just as an argument around why emotional intelligence should be at work but i think um i think as well you know one one area of emotional intelligence is really important is this idea of emotional contagion. So, you know, we've been living in this last uh, 18 months with this horrible pandemic, this invisible virus that we're trying to deal with. But, you know, our emotions are caught. And so, um, therefore, as well, I think it's important for us to realize, you know, what's the mood I'm sowing in the work today? And I think, you know, very often when we come in in a situation and that we are a calm presence, that we are a reasonable presence. Um, there is something that becomes very attractive about that. People are very attracted to it. And I think, you know, very often, you know, say, well, how can I change culture? It's, it's very difficult to do that at work. You know, we just can't go in and say, Hey, I want all these changes, um, with a magic wand. But I think our very presence and the quality of our emotional intelligence becomes very attractive to other people. What we begin to find is that people begin to seek us out. They begin to ask us questions. They begin to confide in us. And this is a way, I think, of, of spreading, you know, what people are attracted to, they may not even be able to name it, but really what they're attracted to is, is, is our level of emotional intelligence. And that can be a nice way of introducing others into, you know, different techniques, et cetera, that they might want to think about uh, to expand their own emotional intelligence. So, um, Dr. Ivan, I'm, I'm interested in, there is a point about, you know, there is a book called Presence, I think for Emi, Professor Emi, and he said there's a relationship between your body language and your emotion. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure how much is true that if you practice uh, some uh, uh, poses, you know, victory poses, it will change the chemistry in your brain. 
and it's like fake it until you make it so that um, many people they believe that that okay you, you feel sad you can do a little bit stretching you can do the victory pose and for two minutes then you feel your you know your chemistry in your body I, I don't know how, uh, how much uh, we can use that in real life because sometimes we need to face it, we need to go to, to need to address it. This is my first part of the question. My second part, how gratitude and um, me having a me time can help your emotional intelligence. So I have a question with two parts. Okay, so so the first question then is is about the research of Amy Cuddy from from Harvard Business School, and um, you know there was a she had a very popular TED talk, and it was about you know kind of your this power pose uh, and how that power pose can impact the mood and emotions that we feel. Now there's some controversy around the research because um, um, there was research about um, some of the 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 neurotransmitters and chemicals, and that couldn't be replicated. However, there is some really interesting research, continuous research, that people who who um, use power posing um, before a, an event in which they feel they lack confidence, etc., can change their perceived levels of confidence. For instance, there was a, an experiment done in Hong Kong University where uh, older citizens were invited to take computer classes, and they were nervous about this new technology. And half the class um, did power posing before it and half did not. And what they found is that the adoption rate of the new technology was higher with those who had done the pre-power posing. So something's happening. There is a connection between our bodies and our emotions. And this is absolutely true because the first way we begin to notice our emotions before we even in our brain saying, oh, I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad is that we begin to physiologically see signs of those emotions. So there is a definite connection. Now, what we know just from body language is that the more confident I feel, the more... Um, um, environment I'm going to take up. I spread, I become more comfortable. I, I spread my arms, my legs. And what we know is when I feel nervous and I feel um, a lack of confidence, I, I kind of go back into what I like to call a tortoise shell and, and that we just, we retreat. So this, this ability to um, spread our bodies um, and it to impact perhaps the mood or perceived mood, I, I think is is very real. One of the exercises that I like to do when I work with clients is I like to invite them to close their eyes and to think of the proudest moment of their life. And I, I have them recall that, what was being said, what was happening, what were some of the voices. And when you when I get the opportunity to look at what's happening, it's amazing how their body posture changes. So here they are, their bodies straightened. I can see some smiles. And when people debrief that exercise, there's, there's a shift, there's a change in how people feel. So I think absolutely, I think we can um, impact our emotions uh, through our bodies and, uh, and how our bodies feel. Um, and then the second question was about gratitude. And um, absolutely. So I'm, I'm a, a huge proponent of practices of gratitude. Because I think, um, again, a clear connection between levels of gratitude and optimism and um, our levels of optimism and, and our levels of um, uh, an ability to kind of uh, see um, alternatives and to, to seek alternatives. So, you know, I think... Um, People who have certain practices, like, for example, at the end of the day, recalling two or three things that they are grateful for, um, 
uh, or in the beginning to kind of set an intention for the day. Um, all of that is is really great because I think it, it it begins to change our focus. And so often, you know, our focus is in what's not gone right, what we don't have, um, what's missing. And I think, you know, gratitude practices can change that focus into, you know, what have I got? Uh, what's working? Uh, what am I grateful for? And, and that change of focus, I think, can be really helpful in really in, in our levels of uh, eventually of happiness and improving our levels of happiness. I love that what you said about gratitude can change sometimes the level of happiness and increase it up. And I love what you said about, you know, the body language and sometimes it has an impact. But now we are in COVID. And, you know, in the COVID, everything became virtual. And, you know, we cannot transmit our body language to the other guy. So can that body language can affect the body virtually? And can how can people understand your body language, either in person or virtually? So um, great question. And um, I'm a great believer absolutely in the virtual environment. Uh, so there are five different channels of data that come to us uh, when, when it comes to nonverbal. We have facial expressions, we have body language, we have vocal tone, we have vocal content and vocal flow. Vocal content is the words we use, vocal flow is the flow of our sentences when that may change, and uh, our voice. So virtually when we're just on the phone, we still have three, we still have three channels. We still have the words the person's using, their tone, and we still have uh, the flow of the conversation. And, you know, I've done some work with uh, emergency responders, people who take phone calls when you call the emergency line. Uh, it's amazing how tuned they are to the human voice and how they can notice subtle differences in changes of tone, et cetera, depending on, on, so depending on what's being said. Uh, virtually as well, we can see facial expressions. So, you know, one of the things is I can see um, emotions. I can see what's what's on your face if, if I'm paying attention. But you see, the problem is we have a bias and the bias is towards words. When we're having a conversation, we're so focused on the words that sometimes we miss what's being said non-verbally to us. And then depending on where the camera is placed, I can see uh, um, some some forms of the gestures that are being used, etc. So it's not ideal, but it's still um, possible. Now, one thing I just want to say about virtual, um, especially say in Zoom or the platform, um, we are not made as human beings to see ourselves when we communicate. That's not natural, and it's exhausting. And so what I always tell, you know, there's a feature in Zoom where you can turn off your own camera for your, just not turn off the camera, but you can hide your camera from yourself. And I think that's essential because what happens is it's very hard to be, um, to be connected it's, um, and to not look at yourself. Like, for example, in this platform we're using today, I'm, my picture is there and I can't help but avoid look at myself. Um, and that's distracting because it, 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 it um, takes me away from being totally present to another person and the signals that you can take up. I really respect that what you said about, for example, like, like being sometimes in Zoom and sometimes can be sometimes we have uh, like sometimes fatigue from it and sometimes we cannot see ourselves. Like sometimes we try to hide ourselves from it because sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes because looking at ourselves for a long distance period, we cannot focus always ourselves like we are focusing ourselves in a manner. Yes. And when we focus ourselves, I would think it's about, about me rather than the person. Yes. And unfortunately, most of the software, they tend to put you on the beginning, at the, at the beginning of the screen, rather than they put you on the end. And unfortunately, the other guy would be in the end, so it would be focused on you. So, wow, yeah. fantastic. 
But going back to the management and conflict, sorry, if I, I, maybe I skipped that question. No, no. So okay. uh, what can we respond from empathetic way? How the leader can respond to you from very empathetic way? Or how can we get empathetic res- response? Because really that's an emotional intelligence that really we need about it. Yeah, so so I think, you know, when it comes to conflict is very often, um, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but very often in conflict, one of the things that happen is that it's very difficult at times to not to personalize what's happening. And so when we begin to personalize things and we make everything an attack on us, we begin to shut down and we become defensive. And when we become defensive, um, it is very difficult to manage the conflict. And so um, I, I like to say when it comes to conflict, um, have, we, have we, especially as a leader, uh, um, a mindset of curiosity? You know, are we curious about where are these words coming from? What, so, you know, we have the words that are being said, but then we also have to be curious, what's behind those words? Where is this person coming from? Am I aware of anything that's happened that, that's driving this person to this particular um, situation? You know, there's a visualization exercise that I like to suggest sometimes with leaders, is that when we're in a heated conversation, that if we could just visualize the words coming out of the other person's mouth and landing on the table in front of us, rather than landing on us, it, it, it separates us a little bit so that we're able to look at this and be curious about it. What, what, what's, what's behind this? And, um, and that takes practice. But I think that's where we begin to become better um, people in the midst of conflict and that we're able to, um, to really drive the disagreement uh, into um, a resolution or a deeper understanding of where the person's coming from. Because ultimately... At the end of the day, what people are yearning for, I believe, is to be listened to. And I feel when people are listened to and they feel they're being listened to, then I think they're able to accept perhaps decisions that they might not agree with because that they know that their voice is being heard. And I think that becomes very important. And as leaders, we have to facilitate that. But Dr. Erin, this point is really important. I mean, many people, they think that, is it right? Let me ask you that that, um, people, they think that females, they need to be to be more heard or listened than men. Is it that true that in general that they said even the many books they mentioned that that women in general uh, they need to be heard or to feel that they are heard or listened more than men. Is it that right in emotional intelligence that uh, uh, f- female as a gender uh, they need that more than male or it, uh, there is no difference in that? It's different from person to person. So I would make a distinction here between biological and cultural. So I would say, I would say there's nothing inherently biologically between women and men that would mean that one needs to be listened to more than other. But I think culturally, um, you know, we, we know culturally that, that in an organizations, uh, women's voices are often not heard. And so at times, um, you know, uh, therefore that has created, um, I think where, where, you know, when, when you live in a, in a, in a culture or a system where systematically you're not being listened to, that can create then a need to be listened to. So I think, I think, you know, there's nothing inherently biologically that women are different from men when it comes to feeling heard. But I think this is where culture as well, um, both company culture and, and, and geographical culture also imposes a layer that's important to consider. What you, I love what you said about the culture, especially. When you have the conflict culture, especially sometimes when you work in multinational company, you will have some cultural issue. 
and sometimes culture is a big important yes. thing about you know oh. emotional intelligence. So how we can uh, should we understand everyone culture, especially when we work in multi-person international company, you will find people with multiple cultures. So shall we know everyone culture or should we have a unified culture? Well, this is a great question because then, of course, absolutely, then we have well, and we we have to be so careful. So we have we have cultural. Um, we we, we we can make we, we can't make assumptions about all culture, but we know in general some cultures are more direct than indirect. So we know that if I'm talking to someone from Northern Europe, um, that that culture tends to be direct. And so more often than not, that a person will will speak how they feel and they will be very direct in their conversation. But then there are other cultures that are very indirect. And so in other words, culturally, the lesson being learned is that it's not appropriate for them to be so direct or to call out and they'll, they'll do it very indirectly. So now we also don't want to put people in a box and say, oh, just because you're from, say, Sweden, this is the way you're going to talk or you're from China, this is the way. So we also have to be censored. But in general, I think it is important to be aware of some cultural norms. And so if we're in a multinational organization, and, and especially if we're working very closely with different cultures, I think it behooves us just to learn a little bit more about that culture and how that culture shows up. And there's many resources you can look up and uh, online about that. And I think that's very important. Not that we want to box a person in by saying that's how they're going to react, but just in general, um, how does that cultural function? Um, some cultures, before we have a direct conversation, we need to get to know each other. Uh, in other conversations, in other cultures, it's like, I don't want any small talk. Let's just get to it. So there's there's different cultures view things differently. And I think that can lead to a misunderstanding. And in some cases, it can lead to um, uh, conflict. I love what you said about that, about the culture, because I have a personal exp- experience from the culture, especially when I work at one of the multinational company, because, we, you know, because I don't want to go for ethics, but I'm Muslim and I'm used to be fasting. And the whole team was not fasting. Because they are not Muslims, they are not fasting. And it for me, it's okay. You can eat and drink in front of me. I will not even judge you about that. It's fine. But for example, that the, the boss of the, of the head office, of the, the, the regional director, he knows that I'm Muslim. I'm the only guy Muslim. I remember he sent like a memo to all the team. Please, no one eat in front of me. And I remember one of the guy was eating like a sandwich. You know, Subway sandwich. He when he saw my face, he got really scared and throws a sandwich away to the spin. I don't, man, dude, chill out. Just can't have a eat it. He was really afraid. So I, I really understand the really culture is different sometimes. It gives even the emotional intelligence because the way how we raise up is differently. For example, like when you raise up in more Western, Western culture, we like the performance. Like, as you said, we are direct. They like to have personal space. They are like individualism. However, like when we go to, to our Eastern culture, you will have like more of that community, communion, and we have yep. to be more yep. like more di- not there, there will be no indirect response. So you have to be a little bit careful. Yeah. So I understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had to myself. I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is a much more communal um, uh, culture than, say, the U.S., which is a very individualistic uh, culture. You know, we we take great pride in the individual and the stoic individual, and and that's different, and that impacts. Um, the other thing when it comes to emotions that's really important is there's a thing what we like to call display rules, and that becomes, so we may have emotions, we all have emotions in the same way. However, 
uh, when we grow up in a culture that imposes norms about when it's appropriate. So like some cultures have very important norms about when you can show anger, when you can't show anger. So say, for example, like uh, you can't show anger to a, an elder. And, you know, so so that norm becomes uh, ingrained within us and actually trumps um, sometimes the emotion that we're feeling. So those display rooms rules become really important for us. And therefore, culture is a key indicator in, at times and how emotions show up. Love that. I like it. That really like this point about that. So because now we know that sometimes we understand that like emotional intelligence come from many culture and sometimes become from the way we raise up and the way we run from different aspects and different behavior. Unfortunately when you go to work, you are not equipped with it. So should to be taught at least from college or from university or even from high school as one of the parts of the skill. Absolutely. Yes, a hundred percent, a thousand percent. Um, here's what we know, and and there's a lot of research now being done in this area. We know that when children are taught to name their emotions, they're taught what we call emotional literacy. So they're taught to explore their emotions. They're taught to name their emotions. They can mention the degree of their emotions. What we know from that is that they are much better able to manage their emotions and. Um, all the different indicators from schools improve. And so they tend, they will perform better at school. There's less um, dropping out of school. There's less recidivism um, for those that get into trouble. So we know that this has a huge impact Um, because here's the problem. And I think you allude to it. The problem is this, is that we know that emotional intelligence is important, but there's nowhere in our careers where we actually learn about it. We're actually we're supposed to pick it up magically somehow and and develop it. And uh, and of course, some people are better than others. Some people are better socialized than others. But for many people, it's like uh, that becomes a mystery. And um, say, for example, that just that simple thing of naming emotions. You know, there are people who later in life and they have such a limited vocabulary on their emotions. You know, how are you feeling today? I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm happy. And that's it. Well, what do you mean by you're angry? Do you know what that means? And there's no nuance and there's no ability to differentiate how they're feeling or the strength of their emotions. So in answer to your question, absolutely. I think um, we should have courses in, 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 I believe, in grade school. You know, there's some amazing research now being done in, in children uh, at young ages being taught to meditate, being taught to, to being just simple practices of being silent with themselves, etc. And the impact in that is, is enormous. Leila, I like that. I like the answer you said about it. Because to be honest, I... I'm personally, because I resonate with that, I personally was facing from some of the interpersonal skill and from the emotional intelligence. And because I was not equipped from it, because even, because I worked a couple of work, but I never equipped from it unless I, unless like I let, in my late, my career experience. So when I understand that I have the issue, I had to resolve it. And when I start, you know, going to interpersonal, I got, I went to a course about interpersonal and emotional intelligence. And I started thinking about more about mental health. I start to discover more about self It's really I resonate about that. So really it's fantastic topic and fantastic talk with you. Really. So wow, fantastic. So where people can find more about you? 
Sure. If people um, just uh, type in my name, IrvinNugent.com, they'll get to my website. There's a number of different links there. Um, I'm also pretty prolific in YouTube. Every week I put out a different video on a topic of emotional intelligence education. So I invite people to put in my name in YouTube and subscribe and you'll get uh, the weekly video, which manages, talks all different aspects of emotional intelligence and work. Um, and I think that uh, people may benefit from that. And then just one other thing is I did put together an online course, which is totally free and it's it's really the basics of emotional intelligence and it's uh, irvinnugent.com forward slash gift and it'll take you to that and you can get the course for free and it'll give you the basics and some exercises to begin to grow emotional intelligence oh, really, I love, lovely so lovely so, so any final thought from you um You know, I would just say this, remember that uh, we have more power than we think to influence around us and that each and every day uh, our emotions are being caught by others. And if we can just be very deliberate in that and uh, and how we show up in our presence, um, it is the beginning of influencing and the beginning of being able to impact those around us. So lovely. I love reading that. I really resonate with that. So lovely. So thank you, Dr. Enfa. It was really nice to meet you. Thank you, and for sure, we put all the Nitian Choma. Take care. Fascinating topic today about emotional intelligence. To be honest, I know some of you have listened to the episode before, and they might even listen to emotional intelligence before. Yeah, I understand, but we should remind ourselves, especially in the engineer, we are, you know, it's a tough, especially in the construction. Forget about engineer. It's a tough market, and, you know, and sometimes we tough our emotion and everything, and people now they are talking about it a lot, and our well-being and emotional intelligence are connected together. So what do you think about it, guys? Do you like the episode? And if you love the episode, send it to one best friend of you or to someone. Send it to someone and tell them why this episode is really helpful and meaningful to you. Thank you, guys. I wish you the best and take care and bye. It was nice to meet you. And remember, guys, we are raised by sharing the knowledge to everyone. Sharing is caring. It was nice to meet you guys and wishing you the best. Take care, guys, and wishing you the best. You guys have a good, good day and good night. Thank you.